from Ephesians chapter 2. Therefore we remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at one time, at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The word of the Lord. This week I got I got pretty mad. I'd seen something online that uh, someone that I know had kind of posted, and I just disagreed with what had been posted. And so I went to some other friends and I said, "Look at this. This doesn't make any sense. Let's, we can take this apart." Yada yada yada. And a friend pushed back and said, "Well, you, you know, Ryan, you're just being cynical. You're being overly critical." You know, you're attacking this in a way that, that is a bit over the top. And I said, no, but I'm right. And this is, not, this is not cynicism. It's righteous indignation that needs to pour out on this person's situation. Not that I was addressing it with the person directly at all. And, uh, but what, what was pointed out in that exchange and in thinking about how um, one gets angry and how one may feel hostility towards someone in the body... What we're called to is demonstrate a level of community and togetherness, of oneness, as Paul says here, that the two have been made one, that's winsome to the world, that says something is unique about our community, and when people see that in our community, it should invite them into participation. They should want to be part of it. And on the other hand, when we don't act in the way that we're called to by Paul in this passage... I think we offer something to the world that looks just like the rest of the world when we allow hostility and divisiveness to seep into our relationships, when we separate from one another and don't really push into to real and deep community, then that's not something that's particularly compelling because it doesn't tell well the story of the gospel. And this is Paul's concern, uh, particularly in chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, Many commentators consider it the heart of his letter to the Ephesians. Really, it's, it's 
basically, it's a summary of the entire New Testament. In verses 11 through 12, he reminds that uh, the Jew, Gentile believers that they were Gentiles in the flesh. You were outside of God's promises. You were outside of God's plan. You've been brought near in verses 13 through 16. Christ has saved you. You're rescued. Now Jewish believers and Gentile believers form one new people. And then verse 17 through 22 is that uh, the result of this is the building up of a new people. It's the building up of the church. That's the big picture of 11 through 22. And it's easy to understand in an abstract sense. It's much more difficult to actually put into practice. And what we have to wrestle with is how then is our hostility thwarting, you know, if the church is God's primary plan for the story of the gospel to be told and to be extended to the world, then when we fail to act as we should as the church, we compromise the telling of that story. So how are we guilty of that? How do we need to think about the hostility that we experience? How do we need to think about our community so that we would not only better tell the story of the gospel, but actually experience the gospel in real depth? So first, let's, let's start where Paul begins. In verses uh, 11 and 12 of chapter 2, Paul writes, uh, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, and then continuing, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. Right? Just as if, if that wasn't clear enough, you Gentiles who have now come to faith, you didn't know God at all, you weren't part of His plan, you weren't included, you were strangers, you were aliens, and the result of that is you are without hope, because to live without God in this world is to live without hope. The Gentile story is a story that lacks hope. Why remember this? Why does Paul feel it necessary to bring this up to the Gentile believers? There could be a number of reasons. He's not saying emphatically why he's doing this. But probably from the rest of the letter, we could certainly say that the Gentiles have forgotten from where they've come. They're tempted to return to living like Gentiles, And so they have to be remembered. No, remember, to live like a Gentile is to be without hope. It is to be without God. He he says that emphatically in the beginning or the middle of chapter 4. In verses 17 and 18, he writes, You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. To be a Gentile is to be without God. And that is because of the hardness, the ignorance that is in a Gentile, because of their hardness of heart. Now, wait a minute. It's a little confusing because Paul is saying that, remember, this is where you've come from, which means you've moved from that place. But he's also saying that you don't want to go back there and continue to live there. See, some of you know you were converted later in life. So you understand the kind of conversion that Paul is talking about in the church in Ephesus. Right? They hear about Jesus midlife. They have a more dramatic conversion, and you might be sympathetic with that. Others of you were born in the church and perhaps were baptized in the church. You've never been strangers to the covenants of promise. And so you don't necessarily know that transition. But this idea that you were Gentiles in the flesh, you may have been born into a believing household, so you never really were necessarily a Gentile in the flesh. But don't miss Paul's point. Paul's point in his letter to the Ephesians is not that there's been a decisive leaving behind everything Gentile, right? And 417 says emphatically, you, you, you always run the risk of walking like a Gentile. 
You're never free of going and walking like a Gentile, of deciding that really in your ignorance and hardness of heart, you know better than God and moving away from relationship in Him. That is always a threat for the believer. You're never beyond it. And this is the warning that Paul holds out in the book as a whole. So what is it to be without hope? You know, if, if Paul is challenging the church in Ephesus to remember, what does it mean for us to remember what it was like to walk without God, to walk in hopelessness? What does it really look like to be that kind of Gentile? Julie Miller is a female triathlete, and this past fall she won the Canadian Ironman. It's a pretty accomplished triathlete. It's a qualifier race for the world championships. Over the last several years, she's put a number of races under her belt and uh, is accomplished in a number of other ways, too. She's a mother of two. She runs her own business. All the girls apparently in her hometown in Canada kind of look up to her as someone to be admired. Suzanne Davis came in second at the Canadian Ironman, and Suzanne Davis is actually an even more accomplished triathlete than Julie Miller. And Suzanne Miller was very frustrated that day, Uh, not simply because she came in second, but because she knew for a fact that she came out of the water first, right? You've got swim, bike, run. So she came out of the water first, and she was very intent to pay attention for the rest of the race where she was in the standings and to make sure that no one in her age group women ages 40 to 44, was passing her. So all of a sudden, she finds herself on the second-place podium, and she asks Julie Miller, when did you pass me? I never saw you. And Julie Miller kind of dismissed it quickly and moved on. Well, Suzanne Davis said, something's fishy here. This woman never passed me. So she assembles a team of athletes and does an amazing amount of detective work, collecting pictures that had been taken all along the race course, interviewing people who staff different uh, race stations on the race course, resulting in a timeline which demonstrated that Julie Miller could not have possibly completed the course. She had done the cardinal sin in any kind of endurance sport racing, really, which is cutting the course. And this led uh, people to start to say, well, if she cut the course at the Canadian Ironman, where else has she been cutting the course? Her town raised money through Facebook to send her to a championship in China. And it became clear that she had cut that race. And there was a mountain bike win, and it became clear that she had cut that course too. She was actually really rather brilliant. It's pretty hard to cut a course and get away with it. But she had lost a number of time chips over several races or bibs that she was supposed to wear at check stations and somehow hid out on the course and had made a name for herself in cutting these courses. Now, why? This is a woman, successful businesswoman, successful mother, And pretty good athlete, way better than us, right? She's competing at a pretty serious level, and she may not be winning. She may not be at that upper level, but she's a good and accomplished athlete. Why cheat to get the win? Because for Julie Miller, it was never enough. It was never enough to be close to the top. She had to be the top even if cheating is what she had to do to get it. See, she was never never filled. And this is the emptiness of the ignorance and the hardness of Gentile living. Because whether you're seeking love or power or wins or influence or belonging, it is never enough. It never fills up. David Lade, just to give you another quick example, is a 14-year-old, and he's part of a phenomenon amongst young people in general, which is uh, young boys 
very uh, dissatisfied with their physical appearance and feeling uh, awkward about it, shy. His coach on the hockey team called him chicken legs. At 14, he said, I'd had enough of that. And at 14, he was uh, 5'8 and 98 pounds. And by 17, he was 6'2 and 190 pounds. He had become a gym rat, taking every supplement that he could possibly muster, and he looks like a superhero. I mean, and he's very handsome. And you, you read this interview with him, and essentially what he says at the end is, yeah, I've made some ground, but I can't ever get big enough. No matter how hard I try, there's always someone bigger, and I'm always jealous of someone. And as you read the article, you know, oh, he keeps talking affectionately of the promise of steroids. It's a matter of time before you move on to that. And it talks, the article talked about a number of his friends who are in their young 20s who have died of heart attacks because of all the supplements and steroids and working out that has put too much stress on their heart. But for Julie Miller, for David Laid, right, it's not enough. What I think gives me hope, what I think gives me promise is going to fill me up. That is the Gentile road. It never actually satisfies. And this is what Paul wants to remind the Gentile believers of. Yes, we know that the Gentiles, as a result of persecution, are probably tempted to simply going back to worship whatever they worshipped before. It's Artemis, probably, who is the goddess of Ephesus. And Paul says, no, you don't, you don't remember that that road was without hope. Why? Because any road apart from God is without redemption. And every story sooner or later needs redemption. There is no story that ultimately will survive without redemption. And so, without having real redemption, there is no hope. And this is what Paul calls the, uh, the church in Ephesus and us to remember. Remember from where you've come. Remember the hopelessness out of which you have been drawn. And friends, some of you know this well because you are so tempted and so often go back and live like a Gentile. You return to something that had mastered you before you converted, and you go there and seek to find life, and you hate it because you know it doesn't give you life. It devours your humanity. So what does it mean to be redeemed in the midst of that story? To be reminded not to walk like a Gentile, but instead to walk in Christ. Well, secondly, this is what, what Paul has for us in verses 13 through 16. Look at verse 13 with me. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And Paul goes on to emphasize, notice how preeminent Jesus is in everything that has occurred and everything that you can experience. In verse 13, it's in Christ Jesus. In verse 14, it's in his flesh. In verse 15, it is in himself. In verse 16, it is in one body. And in verse 18, it is through him. Everything that has occurred, everything that has been accomplished is solely in and through Christ, which means your experience of it is bound up in your experience of Him. Well, what might get in the way of your experience of Christ? Well, what's getting in the way of the Ephesians' experience of Christ is the hostility that has grown up between Jewish and Gentile believers. Look at verse 14. Paul speaks in a couple curious turns of phrases in explaining what Christ has accomplished. In verse 14, he says that Jesus has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now, that, that's interesting for a couple of reasons. Number one, Paul began by saying that the problem was for the Gentiles that they lived in the flesh. And now he says that the problem has actually been remedied by the flesh 
by the flesh of Christ. He's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And Paul has a fantastic move in Colossians where there's a great deal of overlap between Ephesians and Colossians. Probably written about the same period of time. And if you read the two together, you get a much richer view of what Paul is thinking at that point in time. But in 2, 11, and 12, Paul says that Christ has been victorious, that he has, in essence, broken down this dividing wall because of the circumcision of his flesh. Right? Interesting phrase. Right? He's not talking about Jesus' circumcision literally. He's saying that Jesus' circumcision was a shedding of blood, right? indicating the need to cleanse sin, and it was a removal of the flesh, indicating ultimately the need actually for the heart to be circumcised, for the flesh of the heart to be cut away and to be renewed. And so this actually is affected right? in the circumcision of Christ's flesh, not, not in literal circumcision, but then he actually gives up his flesh. He's put to death. He himself is cut away. And what does this do? It breaks down the dividing wall of hostility. What is that? Well, Paul almost certainly means the wall that existed in the temple between the Gentile court and the Jewish court. If you were a Gentile, you could go into the first section of the Jewish temple. You couldn't go any further upon pain of death. And Paul says that wall that divided Jew and Gentile, that was a wall of hostility, has been broken down. That hostility no longer exists because Jew and Gentile no longer exist. It is a new people forged in Christ himself, an entirely new state of being. And he goes on in verse 15 to say, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Well, that's a bunch of big words. Right? What, about, what is it about the law? It can't be all the law because Paul relies on the Mosaic law in numerous places. But it's the parts of the law that defined Israel as separate from the rest of the population, namely the food laws and circumcision. It would be removed so no longer these barriers of hostility exist between Jewish believer and Gentile believer that they might come together. And Paul, to the extent that he says such great peace has been wrought that not only is it in Christ, but he says Christ himself is your peace. To have Christ is peace, and to speak of peace is to speak of Christ. Why would Paul bring all of this up? That Christ heals our relationship with God, he heals our relationship with one another, right? Now, when you're reading Paul, and some of, particularly Paul's letters, you have to remember that you're reading someone else's mail, This was a letter that Paul penned intended for a particular audience, and he's addressing and being motivated to talk into certain aspects. And we don't know always all of the details of what he's speaking to. It would be nice in many ways if we did. But we don't. But imagine that you sit down with a friend and start saying, you know, I'd like to talk to you about hostility. Or if you sit your kids down and say, you know, let me bring up hostility that exists in our house with the kids. Right? Are you doing that randomly? Of course not. Something motivates it. You're bringing up hostility because you need to deal with hostility. This is what Paul is doing. He's bringing it up because of the hostility that exists. That, and again, we don't necessarily know the details, but it's easy to imagine, and we can be informed by other places that Paul writes, that the Jews are pulling a little, well, we were here first. We've been worshiping Yahweh a long time, and we've been looking forward to Messiah, and uh, you guys have a lot to learn from us. So let's, uh, let's not forget who was here first. And the Gentiles, you know, can imagine, got pretty tired of that. Said, yeah, you were here first, but you didn't do a very good job. Uh, maybe you can learn from us as we get it better, more right than you did. You know, th- petty things. 
How do you think that easily would have grown up within the church between these two different classes of people? Because we grossly underestimate the degree to which we devour one another. Right? The opportunities that we would take, if I can consume a pound of your flesh because it makes me feel good or strong or better, uh, I'm prone to do so. That is the human condition and fallenness. The Grey Gardens is a famous, uh, was a famous estate out on the eastern end of Long Island where the Hamptons are, right? a playground for the rich and famous of New York. Up until uh, the booming 20s, it was mostly potato fields and a few cottages, shacks on the uh, kind of toward the shore. In the 1920s, right, you have the economic boom and you have uh, the Great Gatsby is kind of the idea you want to think when you think of the Hamptons. And there was a family that built a great estate out there, uh, which over the years would become dilapidated and would fall into, uh, really into ruin. The reporter at one point happened to uh, end up talking to someone who was walking into the house. He was out vacationing and ran into this person somewhat randomly. And he said, you look so familiar. You know, he's thinking, I should be able to place this person, but I can't quite do it. She looks very famous. She was very sophisticated, but kind of a little bit aloof. And eventually, she, uh, she introduces herself as Little Edie Beale. Now, Little Edie Beale, if you, uh, in the 1920s and 30s, she was probably the premier socialite or socialitis of uh, the eastern coast. Right? Uh, she is the first cousin to uh, Jacqueline uh, Bouvier, Bouvier, Onassis Kennedy. Okay? And she and, and Jacqueline grew up together and were both you know, considered the socialites, but uh, uh, Edie was considered the real catch. But as stories will sometimes diverge, uh, Jackie's father is a little bit more balanced. Edie's father isn't. He eventually drinks himself to death. Her mother breaks down and she becomes a recluse at the Grey Gardens out in the Hamptons. And in her despair and in her frustration, she starts to feed on her daughter. Uh, She has to be there constantly to care for her. She's always near death. Uh, She controls every aspect of her life and never lets her leave for very long from the East Hampton mansion. Decades go by. The house uh, becomes squalid. Uh, Cats, feral cats running around. The house will eventually be condemned for incredible for health violations that are too gross to tell you about. And um, the reporter, though, develops this kind of relationship of talking to Edie over time. And Edie's always trying to put the best spin on it, and she's always talking about how much she loves her mother. And at the very end, uh, there's this moment of clarity. As things are falling apart and Edie's about to be turned out of the house, they have nowhere to go. They've been abandoned by their family. this, she, there's this moment of clarity in which Edie says, uh, almost shouts out to the, the man, I've been a subterranean prisoner here for 20 years. If you only knew how I've loathed these Hampton, but I love mother. They must have found out how I hated this house. They must have heard my scream. What scream? Last summer out that broken window when I screamed at mother for the first time, it's boring, boring, boring here. I'll go anywhere to be free. The author goes, this is, goes on to say, essentially, this is the secret of Grey Gardens. This magnificent old estate, which is dilapidated, and most people in the community, at least the young people, just think a witch lives there, is really that it's been a prison 
for a daughter whom a mother has fed upon in her despair to try to find life. As a result, just stealing the life of her daughter. Now, you could say that's a good bit of crazy. There's a good bit of crazy out on the east end of Long Island. All well and good. But crazy is great because crazy simply is uh, the normal and the extreme. And by looking at the extreme, it polarizes things for us. It gives us a particular picture of the ways in which, yes, you may not be crazy, or you may be. I don't know. Right? But it gives you a picture of how people will devour one another. And the degrees to which, in which um, you, you, we are all doing this. When a child says to his parent, I hate you, he lashes out and wants to devour. When a parent is unkind to a child or reminds them of how ungrateful they've been in anger, they devour part of the child. In a marriage where we attack one another and devour a piece of one another so that we could be fed and get what we want, right? constantly cannibalism is what we've been given over to as a result of sin. We cannot underestimate this propensity that we have to devour each other. This is part of what it was to walk as a Gentile, and this is why it's essential that we understand that our only hope is really to be rescued, and that the only place that we find peace is in Christ, who gives us what we actually need so that we don't have to devour one another. And this is why Paul goes immediately from here into the church. Right? Look at verses 19. He says that we're members of the household of God. And in verses 21 through 22, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together in a dwelling pit place for God by the Spirit. This is remarkable. In, a, in, in the small section of Scripture, you have the desperation of life without God. You have the redemption and beauty of peace in Christ. And then you have how that, does that play out in this world plays out in the church. In the assembly of God's people, that we together would be built as a family, as a temple that brings glory to Christ. Well, what thwarts us really being built into that temple? What interferes with us telling the best story of the gospel that we can? Well, certainly the kind of hostility that we've talked about. Hostility that exists in our devouring of one another. You know, this passage, nine times out of ten, if you hear this passage preached, and if you've heard it preached in the past, it's almost always applied to the, to the problem of race, which is a very big problem, right? And theologians will often remark that 9 to 12 uh, on a Sunday morning is the most segregated time in America. And that's very true, and it's very sad. But I think sometimes we tend to be distracted. Ah, that's not the right word. Um, we tend to look at some, a huge global problem that we, does require our attention, but we might, be, um, we might look at that and forget to simply pay attention to the ways in which we already aren't dealing with hostility that exists within our community. And so there are some of you that have been, you've been wounded by another person. You've been hurt. Someone has said something or done something, and you've, you've felt the sting of it, and you said, oh, I'm just going to cover this up. Love covers a multitude of sins, but that hurt doesn't go away. And it might be in this room or it might be with another believer that you're associated with. Would you be vulnerable enough to go to that person and say, you really hurt me? Would you please talk about this with me? 
Until we do that, we're really pretending at relationship, right? And some of you know you've been the person who's done the hurting. You've been mean. And you know you've been mean. And in the moment, you wanted to be mean because you wanted to strike that person. You wanted to leave a mark, which we're all prone to do from time to time. But if you've done that, will you, again, be vulnerable and hopeful enough and exercise a degree of faith in Christ where you actually go and repent? We say they're sorry and ask for their forgiveness in the midst of that. Right? This is the basic groundwork of actually having Christian community. If we can't do this, then we're not telling the story of the gospel to anybody because right? we're not living it out ourselves. But when we do this, we begin to not only tell the story of the gospel, but to experience the story of the gospel. You know, Paul will say that the hands and the feet of Christ are the church, and we, we go and we extend forgiveness and we receive forgiveness We're meeting Jesus in our brothers and sisters, his hands and feet at work in the reconciliation of the community. So that's hostility, right, that grows up in us and how we should be handling it appropriately. But part of me worries that we're really, some of you, and some of you know, yet you immediately, yes, I've hurt someone, okay. And some of you said, yeah, I've been hurt. And some of you said both. But some of you are like, nah, I don't, I haven't really hurt anybody, and I haven't been hurt. I'm good. And I think you need to at least ask the question. I think in our culture, particularly today, we've become so individualistic that the lack of hostility that we have in our relationship is actually a revelation of our lack of community. In other words, you can't have hostility until you actually have a degree of relationship. And if you don't have that degree of relationship, then you can't have hostility. And you could be fooled into thinking that you're a pretty swell person and that you're really telling the story of the gospel, when in reality you're not telling any story at all because you don't actually engage in community. Individualism is certainly a huge issue. Michael Crawford is a very interesting figure. He's written a couple of books. He um, studied physics, went on to do a Ph.D. in philosophy, taught for a little while, got tired, came to believe so strongly that we've lost something so dramatic by not working with our hands that he went and learned motorcycle maintenance and believes that he's learned more philosophy and more truth in working with his hands than he ever did from a book, which he considers to be a very late development in the history of the world. So, interesting guy. But he's got a new book out that talks about some of the uh, problems with individualism. And one aspect of it is, is represented, I'll just give you a couple of images, in the changing landscape of the gym. He says, in 1978, he used to go and, and would start lifting weights and working out as a young man, and everybody talked to each other. You would see people that you knew, and you would hang out. And he said you actually had to engage because somebody would bring their radio in and turn it on to the station they wanted, and somebody else would bring their boombox in and turn it on to the station they wanted, and people would argue and fight, and you had to come to terms over what station you were going to listen to. Now you go to the gym, and there are 38 television screens, and everyone's got their earbuds in, and no one's fighting, but no one's talking either. Right? There's no community. There's no interaction. Right? And so the degrees to which that we, we get sucked into this world of virtual and for, boy, if we do not start thinking about this now, for, for the last 15 years, companies have been racing to try to figure out virtual reality. And in the last two or three years, Oculus Rift was the first company that figured out how to make a virtual reality headgear that doesn't make someone so sick that they throw up. Right? Facebook bought them for $2 billion, and now it's, it's hitting the markets and is already sold out in its first run. Right? The world's about to change again pretty dramatically. When you can put on, some, you know, the 
the goggles and enter an entirely different world and engage all kinds of programming. Like we're just at the beginning of how this is going to affect and change society. Right? So let us be a people who at least to some degree unplugs. Right? Who turns off the television and puts away the game system and actually engages at least one another and then hopefully the community right? as we interact. And be this really strange bird that says hi to someone and starts up a conversation at the gym. That's one aspect of individualism. Another aspect of individualism is just to realize the degree to which the corporate greed is, if, if corporations are pouring everything they have in to, to draw all of your attention to what they're, they're selling and marketing, then if you're not aware of that, you're going to get sucked in. And... Uh, Crawford points out that one of the best examples of this is the cognitive science that has gone in, into designing slot machines to prey upon those who have a propensity to gamble. And so the interview goes like this. The book's most shocking passages are about the high-tech slot machines and casinos, engineered to such a point of perfection that players routinely wet themselves while playing. It is chilling, says Crawford. The people who design these machines are very up-to-date on cognitive science. The point of the design is to get people to, quote, play to extinction. That's their phrase. And the biggest players are not tourists. They are people who work in the hotels. They get their paycheck and feed them straight back into the machines. It's a social engineering project that has been conducted not by government nudgers, but by mind-boggling wealthy corporations. Right? Again, simply to realize if that degree of engineering and thought is going in right, to control and to consume the, the soul of a person, then we had better be pretty wary. Right? And again, to actually engage community. And what do I mean by that? Well, Crawford has this great example. He says, uh, he uses the example of a cook, an ice hockey player, and a motorbike racer. And he says, listen, for those three things, there's no amount of reading you can do that will give you the knowledge of a practitioner. You can't read 20 cookbooks and cook like a real chef. And you can't read several books about ice hockey and know what it feels like to have the puck under your stick. And to know the feel of the ice. And you can read 20 books about riding a motorbike, but there's nothing that, like the experience of feeling the gravel under the tires and knowing when that your tire is going to give in the midst of a turn. And there's no way that you will know about community and about being the church and about experiencing Christ through one another unless you actually practice it. There's no degree of reading anything that is going to inform you in it until you actually live it. Right? This is what Paul is calling the Ephesians 2. Not to separate, not to run into the direction that's easy. Well, let's worship as Gentile believers over here, and you worship as Jewish believers, and we'll say we get along, but we really won't know each other at all. Right? Paul's very scared because he knows that won't tell the story of the gospel. And in the ways that we indulge in the same kinds of sins and delusions, we don't tell the story of Jesus either. What do your relationships say? about the story of Christ? What do our relationships tell about the story of Jesus? On the one hand, let me compliment you and encourage you because at 10 o'clock, I got to do the first seminar in the intro to... Tra- <laughs> Darn it. It's the second time I've done that today. In the introduction to Rockwell Presbyterian Church seminar. And uh, a, a number of people in the seminar said that uh, what impressed them about the church and one of the reasons that they kept coming is the way that they've been graciously welcomed. That's pretty great. But let us not settle for simply being a welcoming church at the forefront, but for pressing into deep community. 
for working through our hostility. And where we don't have hostility, you better get to know some people so that you can have hostility. (laughs) And I'd rather deal with hostility than live in a community with no hostility because a community with no hostility isn't a community at all. And in that, and in working against individualism, we become a community that truly, by living in that, we experience the hands and feet of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the community that you have created, for, that you have intended in Christ, but we recognize that we have fallen very far short of that community, and we, we long to be more. We long to know the joy and the hardship, uh, the hostility, the frustration, the beauty of, uh, of moving deeper and deeper into relationship. And so, Holy Spirit, would you come and guide us in this? Would you give us the strength uh, to endure in it? And would you uh, give us wisdom as we engage it? And let us be a place that is, uh, that is two miles deep uh, rather than two inches uh, deep and very wide. We ask for your grace in this and that you would build us up in it. In Christ's name, amen.